Welcome to another episode of the Design 30 Podcast. Uh, sorry for missing a week last week. I was uh, nearly dead, it felt like. Uh, no, it wasn't that bad, but definitely had a not-so-fun flu for just about the entire week. So that wasn't much fun. Um, so yeah, welcome into a new episode um, this one, I will be discussing product usability versus value. And, oh, you're probably wondering why there isn't uh, any intro music on this episode. And that's because I'm trying to cut out, well, one of my goals for the next year is to focus a little bit better on the different things I'm trying to achieve. And one of those is this podcast. So I was looking at it in different ways to make it more efficient, uh, allow me to still fit it into my day because like most of you, uh, the day seems to fill up pretty fast. So I was trying to figure out different ways to uh, reduce uh, the amount of time I had to put into aspects of the podcast that weren't necessarily adding value. And the intro music was causing me all sorts of issues. It's a little bit more time on the editing side. And then on YouTube that kept, uh, even though I had a license to use the music, it was still getting flagged. And so I'd have to go in and, and dispute that and enter in all this information for every single episode. So it was really just a lot of time put into things that weren't adding any real value to the podcast. So I decided to cut that out. Uh, also, I decided to uh, shut down the Patreon for Design 30 for now. Um, so again, just trying to minimize uh, the amount of things, amount of pots on the fire, uh, just to focus on what I think is actually providing value and useful and what I enjoy doing. So if you want to support the podcast, you still can through Substack. You can become a paid subscriber to that or you know, you can also just become a free subscriber if you want to see what I'm writing. And I think that's it for announcements at the beginning of this episode. So let's dive into uh, the nitty gritty. So like I said, I'll be discussing these concepts of usability and value. And a lot of this will be informed by a book I recently finished called The Lean Product Playbook by Dan Olson. So there will be a few excerpts from that book uh, in this episode. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's been, or it was, a really, really fascinating read. So to start, I have a definition of usability, and this is from interactiondesign.org. And they describe it as, usability is a measure of how well a specific user in a specific context can use a product slash design to achieve a defined goal effectively, efficiently, and satisfactorily. So this isn't so much about why you need the product or uh, what need it's actually meeting for you, but rather it's more about the experience with the operation of the product. It's more about, is the product easy to understand? Is it uh, or does it have a simple user interface? Is it intuitive? Uh, is it ergonomic? If it's a physical product rather than something like an app? Or 
Is it user-friendly? So all of these are different things that allow you to achieve uh, a defined goal with it. And some examples of good usability are number one, an iPad or iPods back in the day. They're uh, significantly more simple than especially iPods. And you know, if you're old enough, you'll remember having an iPod and they're so much simpler than all of the other MP3 players out there. They had what, like four buttons and then a scroll wheel. So incredibly usable. Uh, compared to a lot of these more high-tech, funky-looking MP3s that were out there. Uh, they're also, another example is uh, well-designed bottle openers. I mean, they're very simple, it's intuitive, you know exactly where to grab with your hand. Um, so it's, it's a really simple product, maybe doesn't necessarily add a bunch of value uh, to your life, but they're well-designed and usable. And then also some aspects of a car, I think, are very simple and usable starting the car. Nowadays, it can be as simple as just a button. Uh, and then obviously driving it, you have gas pedal, brake pedal, and a steering wheel. So those are a few examples of usable products, some of which do add a lot of value to your life and other ones, maybe not so much. Some bad examples of usability are car stereos. I don't know what it is about car stereos, but especially they're getting better now, but back in the day, I feel like they're one of the most the least user-friendly things I ever interacted with. Like just changing the clock on your car stereo seemed to be, I don't know, maybe just me. It seemed very difficult. And I was kind of notorious, at least in high school, for the clock in my car was never right. And that was partly because the usability of the stereo just made it so it was so much of a pain to just change the time on your stereo. Uh, another example uh, of bad usability is government websites. I don't, I don't know if you guys have had the same experience, but so many government websites feel like they're simply, they're there just to get the job done. They technically work, but the usability is just awful. Although some of them are getting better. I will, I will give them that. Uh, now moving on to value. So value I define as the ability of the product to meet a need. So a, a product can still be valuable even if it isn't as usable as other products. Uh, so it could be something that's a little bit difficult to use, but it's the only thing you have that can meet some specific need. So it still has a lot of value to you. And just because a product is usable, like I said, doesn't mean it necessarily adds value um, to the user's life. For example, today you could still get an iPod, I think, or an MP3 player, and the usability could be really well designed, uh, really intuitive, like we discussed, but we all have iPhones or smartphones of some kind, so it really doesn't add much value to your life, no matter how usable it actually is. So I think about this as... Um, you, know, you have these two concepts of usability and value. And for if you want a good product market fit, you want the market to accept your product, want your product, you need to first of all add value. Uh, that means that you're meeting a specific need for the user. Uh, typically means you're also cost effective so people can afford to buy your product. And it needs to perform 
sometimes multiple critical functions, sometimes just one critical function really well for the user. And at the end of the day, it typically something that's valuable either saves money for the user or saves man hours for them or time, time needed to accomplish some goal. So that's the value that drives your product market fit. And then if your product is also usable on top of that, which means it's easy to understand as a simple user interface, intuitive, ergonomic, user-friendly, then you're getting to the point where your product is capable of uh, disruptive innovation. So I'll dive into that a little bit here. So if you're just adding, for example, some additional usability that could help your product achieve incremental innovation. And then if you're adding some value to it, but nothing, uh, you know, market changing, uh, then you're just, you're also just adding some sort of incremental innovation. And Dan Olson in this book I mentioned earlier, uh, the lean product playbook actually has some really good examples of this. So I was, I want to read from the book, and I think it'll help clear up what uh, a disruptive innovation is versus an incremental innovation. So he says, let's discuss a string of innovations where disruption occurred in the market for portable music listening. The high level customer benefit could be stated as, allow me to listen to music on the go. The first product that addressed this benefit was the transistor radio in the 1950s. Prior to that, radios relied on vacuum tubes, which were larger, required more power, and were fragile, making portability infeasible. But while portable radios allowed you to listen to music, you couldn't select the songs you wanted. That changed in 1979 when Sony introduced the first portable cassette audio player, the Walkman. Listeners can now l listen to the music they wanted and to hear by playing tapes, or the music they wanted to hear by playing tapes. The Walkman was a disruptive innovation. Several years later, Sony launched the first portable CD player, the Discman, which offered additional benefits, higher sound quality, and the ability to easily and quickly jump from one song to the next versus having to fast forward or rewind a cassette tape. Although it was eventually solved later, one negative of the earlier Discman models is that the CD would skip when jostled. I would consider the portable CD player an incremental innovation over the portable cassette player. The next portable music innovation was the MP3 player, first launched in 1998. The first models didn't have a large capacity to store songs, but that changed over time. Apple entered the MP3 player market with the iPod in 2001. It wasn't a runaway hit at first, but the company made major improvements in subsequent models. The combination of its large storage capacity, intuitive user interface, and integration with the iTunes jukebox software and digital music store led it to become the leading MP3 player with over 70% market share. The iPod was a disruptive innovation. So right there, Dan Olson gives some really good examples of you know this thing that we're probably all familiar with, the Walkman to a CD player to the MP3 player. And he really dives into this idea of, or he does a good job of separating disruptive innovation from an incremental innovation. For example, the Walkman allowed the user to do something that they could never do before. They could pick their own music and they could have it anywhere they wanted. Basically it was mobile. 
And then the CD player, the Discman, you know, it improved on a few of the features, you know, a little bit better usability, a little bit more value with more, with higher quality audio, but it really wasn't all that different uh, in kind from the Walkman. And then finally, the MP3 player, the iPod, this was another disruptive innovation purely because of how easy it was to get music onto your iPod and the amount of music you could put on it. It was a huge increase in value as well as usability. So we know the product needs to be both usable and valuable. And usability testing seems fairly straightforward. That's something uh, if you're in product design, you probably hear a lot about. But how do you know if your product is actually valuable? Well, again, Dan Olson talks about this and with a few simple questions after or during your user testing, you can actually shed a ton of light on this. So I'm going to read one more excerpt from the book. In this one, he says he's discussing uh, user testing here. The wrap up section is also the time to answer any questions that came up during the test or that the customer has at the end. If the user had trouble using the product due to known bugs or issues, you can explain that. This is also where you should give users any compensation for their time and thank them. I usually ask users to sign a form acknowledging receipt of payment. On that form, I will often include prompts for the user to write their email and phone number if they want. I also like to include two yes-no questions. Would you be willing to participate in future research? And would you like to be notified when this product is available? These are both meant to be more honest measures of interest. If a user has nothing but positive feedback during the test and gives your product high ratings but doesn't circle yes for those two questions, they were just being nice. I ran one test where I didn't give users any form at the end. After giving them their checks and thanking them, a high percentage asked me when the product was launching, gave me their contact information, and asked me to please notify them when it launched so that they could buy it. The product had tested well, but this additional evidence of product market fit was a welcome surprise. So the main takeaway here is there's some questions you can ask at the end of your user testing that the customer, they're a little bit more honest. They're not in the user testing anymore. They're not going to be afraid of hurting your feelings. So you're actually getting honest feedback at that point on whether or not this product is something that they valued. Do they want to see it again? Do they want to be involved in more user testing? Is it something that they want to purchase once it actually becomes available? So with those simple questions, you can get a really good read on whether or not at least these people that you're doing your user testing with, uh, whether or not they value the product itself. In summary, usable does not equal valuable. Usable means the user can achieve a desired goal with the product. Valuable means that the goal meets an actual need of the user. So you must provide value to have good product market fit, but you also need to provide usability. And if you can provide usability along with that, you just might be able to achieve this disruptive innovation that Dan Olson's talking about in the Lean Product Playbook. So the Design 30 discipline for the week is fairly simple. It's don't confuse usability with valuable. And with that, I'll leave it there uh, for this episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and as always, have a great week, and remember, design more, despair less.